hard to imagine, but this is our 21st study here, and simply the Savior, and it's our fourth in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'd turn to Matthew chapter 5, I wonder what it was like to worship with Jesus. Sit at his feet. And can you imagine the praise that come from the lips of the Lord himself as maybe the disciples, the, the great multitude gathered with them? We're, we're not told whether in this message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord, you know, just taught these things straight through or maybe they took time to worship, to sit at his feet, to pray. But I'd like to think they did. And as the Lord Jesus continues to speak to the disciples and to that great multitude, he now comes to a very adult study. And so I want to make very, very sure, because we've been having some younger people in the congregation on Sunday nights, tonight's message will be PG-13. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to get to some issues. Because Jesus nails it. Jesus got down to the heart and to the real issue at hand with the people then and with the people now. He's already spoken to them and he's talked to them about what anger can do in the life of a child of God. What can happen when you seethe over and you're boiling inside to where that internal place that your heart already is becomes the external reality of where you go. You see, because the problems that we have as believers don't originate with our hands. They don't originate with our eyes. They originate in our hearts. And so as Jesus continues here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're picking up in verse 27 here in Matthew chapter 5. He's now going to go on and he's going to speak about another one of the, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commands. Those things given to Moses that were, in essence, the moral core of who we are as people on this earth and how we're to live our lives and, and how we're to govern ourselves. And, and so he, he now shifts his attention to that of purity and of sanctity. And he couples it with the innate sinfulness of our hearts. And he says in verse 27... For you have heard that it was said to those of old, and again, this is a Hebraism. It was a statement that was well understood amongst the Hebrew people. It was something they would have grasped immediately, that the prophets had been speaking about these things by this time for perhaps as much as 1,500 years. The prophets had spoken to this issue, Moses himself, being as far as the Jews were concerned, the greatest of all of the Hebrew prophets. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now that generally is a place that most people would like to say that they would be in full agreement. Most people in our culture, even today, even though they may even engage in that behavior, would actually say that adultery is wrong. That sexual immorality is wrong. That sexual relationships, especially for those who are married with someone that they're not married to, is wrong. But I say to you, Jesus goes on to say, and he gets to the immediate, literal heart of the issue. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I immediately want to draw your attention that this is not a male-female issue, and Jesus was not trying to make it so. As he spoke these words, he was in a male-dominated culture. He could have just as easily turned these around and said that a man who, or a woman who looks at a man to lust after him in her heart has committed adultery with him. It's not a male-female issue. Jesus was not trying to make that case. But he was trying to make a case about the heart. He was trying to remind us exactly how easy it is to jump from that place of entertaining thought to engaging in action. That place of going from what is in your head and in your heart to what you're doing with your hands, ultimately your body, with your resources, with your mind. Where you go is determined by who you are in your heart. And so he picks this very difficult subject matter. And I want you to see how decisively and how immediately he brings this to the forefront of our thinking. For if your right eye, and he's speaking of the example that's already been given, you see, to the Hebrews, the right eye was the best eye. The right hand was the best hand. It was the best that you had to offer. If your right eye, in other words, people would often during that day and time say, well, I'll give my left eye, but not my right eye. I'll, get, I'll cut off my, right, my left hand, but not my right hand. I mean, that's my best hand. And so he's really saying, look, if the very best that you have, the very best that you are, if that's the problem, it'd be better to lose the very best of who you are as a person to gain the very best of who he is as a savior. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. And this is a horrific thing to think of. I mean, in practicality, to imagine actually doing this uh, is, is somewhat grotesque. But he's making a point. He's telling us how serious it is to dabble in sin. How serious it is to 
even take a step the wrong direction. And in our day and time, and I'm going to let it fly tonight, I'm just going to tell you up front. Because I'm grieved of heart, I'm broken of heart over the destruction of marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage, almost 100% of which involve adultery. Or is more profitable for you that your one member perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell? That's a pretty decisive measure, wouldn't you say? That's Jesus getting real serious about sin. That's Jesus making the case that I think we need to make as the body of Christ. And I realize there are probably many of you tonight that you're, you're not struggling in this area. But I also realize that there are people in this room tonight that absolutely are struggling in this area. This is you. And if it's not you, it is likely people that maybe even live in your home. It's certainly people that you know at work. It absolutely could be your own children. It is so pervasive in our society and so accepted that it's almost seen as inevitable. And I'm here to tell you that it's not God's plan. And so Jesus speaks with some of the most pointed words he uses in any of his messages found anywhere in Scripture. For if your right hand, notice the right eye, the right hand, if the very best of your hands, if the one that you, you see, like for me, I, I'm right-handed. And that's really the inference that's being made here. I'm right-handed. If you tie my left hand behind my back, I can still pretty much do absolutely everything that I could normally do. I'd struggle with things that take two hands. But if you take away my right hand, I am really handicapped. I'm going to have a tough time functioning in life. It's not good watching me eat with my left hand. I mean, the simplest of things that I can do without looking, without thinking with my right hand are work for my left hand. And that is exactly what Jesus is getting at. If the very best of your hands, and it was even worse then because the right hand was the hand extended in fellowship. I don't want to get too graphic here, but the left hand was the hand that was used for personal issues. You never used your left hand to approach someone, touch someone. And in Arab cultures today, you still don't. You don't show your left hand to someone. And so in this culture... You would become unclean, in essence, by losing your right hand. And Jesus is actually saying, look, it'd be better that you be handicapped in about every possible way that you can than to go where your head goes when you engage in this kind of behavior. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. 
Or it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. He repeats it. That's dealing decisively with sin. And it's dealing with it at the level of your heart. It's saying, look, notice what he said, just to look, to ponder in your mind, because here's why. As you begin to think, you remember this morning, if most of you were probably here, what you fill your life with, what you put in, what you immerse yourself in, what you allow yourself to dwell on and ponder and think about, that really is your God. And if your time is being occupied with things that shouldn't be in the mind of a believer, you can imagine how quickly you become very dissipated in the spirit in your life. And before you know it, You've gone somewhere and done something that if you'd have been asked weeks or months before, oh, that'll never happen to me. I'm a happily married man. I'm a happily married woman. Our our marriage is fine. We're doing great. We have a home, two cars, two dogs, two kids, two TVs, and three bedrooms. Never happened to me. And then all of a sudden, you begin to fill your mind, which is the gateway to your heart. It first comes to your head, it moves to your heart, then it moves to your hands. Jesus is affirming God's law of purity. He's he's explaining the intent of that law was to reveal the sanctity of the sexual relationship within marriage. It's the only place that a sexual relationship belongs. It belongs nowhere else and for no other reason. And in our society, oh my, how is that contrary to the world's position? We, we live, Corinth had nothing on Southern California. The Romans, the Greeks, the Medes, the Persians had nothing on America. No society ever in human history has been as sex-satisfied in itself to excess without marriage than the nation that we live in. And so the temptation is grave and it is great because it's everywhere. God doesn't regulate the sexual relationship between men and women because he's trying to ruin it. He invented it. He knows what makes it wonderful. And so he defined how it's supposed to be expressed. It's no different than any other part of the creation that God designed. He said, look, this is how I made it. This is what I made it for. And this is how you use it. You see, for those that think the Bible's an old book filled with old sayings written by old people, for old people, they couldn't be more wrong. 
This is the most relevant piece of literature in the world. And it speaks to the heart of an issue that is destroying, I mean destroying our country, destroying families, destroying children. I'm going to do something right now. Please, if you can, I would ask for you to respond truthfully. How many of you in here, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you in here within one generation of you has someone in your family that is either divorced or going through it currently? Raise your hand. Look around the room. It's almost all of us. Mine was up, by the way. My parents divorced. Adultery leads to divorce. He's going to go to divorce shortly. Let's pray. Father, I just ask now that as we break down this passage and speak of these things, Lord, that you would guard my, my words, Lord, let me say nothing that isn't of you. Pray that you cause your people to hear. Lord, we would be light in this world. Lord, it's not okay. It is not okay to lust. It's not okay to look at porn. It's not okay to watch filthy television. It's not okay to watch despicable movies. It is not okay with you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be strong. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to be immovable in this area of life. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With regard to sex, whenever God says no, it's so that he might say yes when it's right. He's not saying no just because he wants to see how much he can torture you. And I can't even tell you how many young people I've talked to. It's just like, well, you know, what, you know, what difference does it make? Because God said no. And when he says no, he does so from a perfect perception of who you are as a person and who that other person is as a person, who we are as a group of people and why he created the sexual relationship in the first place. God made it for marriage and in marriage exclusively. I'm going to give you some facts and I'm going to give you some figures. The Center for Media and Public Affairs, it's a think tank group that studies Hollywood. In a poll that they had taken with 104 of the leading television writers and executives about six years ago, asked them some very simple questions. And they based it on the responses to people who were not in the media. So you want to see what the media is like, and you want to understand why it is that it's such a mess. 85% of all Americans believe adultery is wrong. Only 49% of TV executives said that they thought it was wrong. Everyone else in the entire country... That's all human beings apart from those in Hollywood. Somewhere between 59 
and 97% of them believe that abortion's wrong. In Hollywood, 100% said it was okay. 100%. While 4% of all Americans have no religious affiliation and thereby no moral belief that God holds us responsible for our actions, 45% of all the television writers and producers said they were atheists. During daytime soap operas, of the sexual relationships that were made prominent in the plot, 94% of them were between unmarried people. 87% of which were between people who were married but not married to the person that they were engaged in sexual behavior with. Why am I sharing this stuff with you? Because we live in a society that's trying to make you believe it ain't that big a deal. It's okay. Can I remind you that Jesus here in this passage actually uses the reference it would be better that you lose a hand or lose an eye than be cast into hell. That's how dangerous this particular sin can be. An interesting fact, and it's not a human one, that the Illinois Department of Natural Resources reported that during the month of November... More than 17,000 deer die on the highways of Illinois. That is over 1,000% more than normal. The reason being, it's the rut season. They're preoccupied with sex. They're completely unwary, and they don't even care that they're standing in front of a car moving 55 miles an hour. Can I say that deer aren't the only ones that are preoccupied? In studies that range from the benign to the almost unbelievable, the national average in the United States of America, now it has risen to almost 75% of all married men have admitted to having an adulterous relationship and almost 60% of all women. Peggy Vaughn, who's the author of The Monogamy Myth, said that if you were to extrapolate out the data to allow for those that simply wouldn't tell the truth, she says it's probably closer to 90% for men and 75% for women. Now, whether those things are factual or not, it's not the point. The point is there's enough people saying that they did there's no reason for them to lie. Very few people lie about a slight on their character unless they're actually trying to be truthful about something that's difficult. In a time CNN poll, remember our wonderful president, Mr. Clinton, his morals, not exactly spectacular. But when questioned about his morals, more than 60% of the people that responded in the poll said they're about the same as everybody else. 
And when you get into the fringes of society, the hedonists, those who are involved in horrific things, it goes almost to 100%. People just don't care. And then there is the proliferation of pornography. As we sit here tonight, on average, there's about 156 billion, with a B, internet searches every day. 156 billion internet searches a day in the United States of America. More than 60 billion of them involve the word sex, porn, nudity, or things that I won't say from the pulpit. We live in a sex-saturated society, folks. And it's getting harder and harder and harder to stand for Christ. And so Jesus, knowing all of this would be the case, was very anti-sex creation, as I like to call it. In other words, recreational sex. And the reason being is because he understood fully because he's the one that invented it. He invented the sexual relationship and he knows exactly how it's supposed to be expressed. And Jesus is not in this passage, nor do I believe that God is trying to put that burden upon anybody saying that lustful desires are the the exact same thing as lustful deeds or actions. Because if you were saying that, then you, you almost can make the case that what's the difference? Just do the deed if you're thinking the thought. It's not what he's saying. He is also not saying that to see something inadvertently, to be driving along the coast highway and look down towards the beach walk and to see somebody, male or female, in a bathing suit is inherently sinful. He's not saying that at all. It is what you do with that thought once you understand what it is. And that is where I believe a lot of Christians lose the battle. It's not an affront to us. It it isn't something that frightens us. It doesn't come across as something as dangerous as a loaded gun. And that is the case that the Lord's trying to make. He says, this is dangerous stuff. So he goes on to give us a recipe as we move through this on how to really gain victory in these things. The Lord's not talking, obviously, about literal surgery. He's not saying, you know, just go grab a machete and chop off your hand. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying pl- actually pluck your eye out. He's making the case that this is so serious that you ought to think about it in that way. Understand it from that perspective. So he's saying deal with it immediately. He's saying deal with it decisively. He's saying don't taper off, cut it off. Amen? can't tell you how many times people will, you know, give me, well, you know, I've been in this relationship for a long time, and it's really hard to just, yes, it's really hard to turn it off, but you need to turn it off, you need to cut it off, you need to stop it, and you need to stop it right now. Not try and wean yourself off of your sin. 
I've not met a person yet that is capable of weaning themselves off of sin. It doesn't work that way. You have to make a conscious choice to say this is wrong and because God is holy and I love him and Jesus paid the price for my life, I'm quitting and I'm quitting right now. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I want to address something. I'm going to certainly irritate some people now. Can I just say to you, it's not just about, you know, photography. It's not just about movies. It's not just about people scantily dressed. It's about what you do with your mind. So rotten, filthy romance novels are in the same category. So if you're reading books that have sexual connotation in them, and they are causing you to be aroused, you are in the same danger as someone who's looking at a photo, someone who's watching a movie. So don't get all high and lifted up. Well, you know, I didn't look at any pictures. (laughs) Didn't watch any video. Tell your mind that. Because I'm pretty sure that your mind and your heart were linked and you're thinking the exact same thing as somebody who did see the pictures and did see the video. I like to tell people, 50 shades of gray is not okay. (laughs) Throw it away. Real good fire starter if you have a fireplace. Stick it in there and light that puppy up. Spiritual surgery is what Jesus is saying. Look, you need to kill it or it'll kill you. Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, verse 5, it says this. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. That's a pretty strong statement. That's what Jesus was getting at. You, you see, we as human beings don't know where that boundary is. You, you play with it, pretty soon the lines are blurred. Well, you know, maybe it's lust, maybe it's not lust. You know, it's just, it's just uh, you know, it's a movie plot. I made a comment a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, and I want to clarify it. I made a reference to Straight Outta Compton. I did it because we as Christians are to be light. There are 600 swear words in that movie, over 300 of which refer to sexual conduct. That's not something a Christian should fill his mind with. I don't care what the storyline is. It's just not something we should be putting into our minds, period. You see, it's, it's not a cultural thing. It's a Jesus thing. 
It's not something that I, that I spoke about because I was trying to disrespect anybody. I was simply saying, look, we are to be light. That's not light, that's filth, and it's darkness. It's filth. It is putrid filth. And you can talk about it all you want. And it isn't going to become unfilth. That movie has full frontal nudity in it. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. There aren't too many people that can watch full frontal nudity and talk about popcorn, okay? Let's just be straight up and real. And now having said that, I will tell you the same thing about Fifty Shades of Grey about a rich white dude. It's filth. Don't put it into your head. Doesn't belong in the life of a believer. It will damage you. It will hurt you. It will rot your mind. It will afflict your heart. Now, if I offend it, it's unintentional. I'm not trying to offend. I'm trying to say truth is truth. Right is right. Right is right. And we need to stop making excuses for why we permit stuff into our lives that should not be there as the body of Christ. Stop it. Repent because it's sin. And turn from it. And renounce it as sin. Don't encourage people to put that stuff in their minds. Doesn't matter what the storyline is. Matters is Jesus said it's sin to lust. Jesus said it's sin to talk about these things in that context. Chuck Swindoll tells a story in his book all growing deep in the Christian life and it's about a man who brought a couple of fried chicken dinners at a fast food chain, one for himself, one for himself and one for his date one late afternoon and the attendant of the food outlet uh, however inadvertently had given him the net proceeds of the day in the bucket. He'd actually put the cash into a bucket and then put the chicken in with it. By the time he got to the picnic site, the two of them sat down to enjoy some chicken. They discovered a little over $800 inside of the bucket. He thought it was fairly unusual. thought that was kind of a large bonus for getting a chicken dinner. <laughs> so he took it back to the store and he, you know, he said, Look, I, you know, I just came and got some chicken and you know, it looks like you put some money in here. Probably was the proceeds and the poor frantic attendant was saying yeah, oh man thank you for bringing that back you know let me call the newspaper I, I want him to know what kind of nice people are on this earth and the guy said oh no please don't do that because the person that I'm on the date with is not my wife <laughs> true story you see good deeds can have dirt dumped on them when you mix it with sin. Children's pastor listening to a fourth grade Sunday school teacher share a concern. He completed the quarter's lessons on the Ten Commandments 
and he had asked the kids which one of the Ten Commandments uh, was hardest to keep, and almost all of them responded, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they were just dumbfounded. What? They're fourth graders. Finally, he quizzed one of the mothers of the children, asked her son what it meant, and without blinking, the boy replied, what, is, what does that mean? Ma? Oh, thou shalt not sass back to adults. You see, we get confused. We, we start thinking it's something that it's not. There's no way to clean it up. It is what it is, and it's wrong. And we need to call it wrong. And so Jesus said, have you not heard it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery? The word here that's used in the Greek language is adulteri, and it is simply sexual intercourse between a man who is married and someone that he's not married to, or vice versa, a woman, same thing. Can I tell you, until 1965 in this state, it was actually a crime. In 21 states in the United States, it's still a crime. It's actually illegal. And yet, the world just doesn't seem to care. And we make excuses. Temptation's been strong. It remains strong. And mass media uses sex to sell just about anything and everything. Amen? It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Connie and I will not eat at Carl's Jr. simply because of their commercials. We won't do it. I'll go hungry. I'll drive another 100 miles. And yeah, it's just one family, but you know what? We need to start saying no. It's not okay. I want to buy a burger because I like the bacon on it. And yet, that's where our country is. It's what your kids are seeing. Infidelity has become rampant in our society. This basic philosophy that the body, you can just do whatever you want, it's been around for a long time. It was a problem at the church at Corinth. That's why Paul in his addressing of the same issue to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, using food for the stomach, stomach for food, it was a Greek notion. Basically what he was saying was biological functions are biological functions and they don't matter. In Jesus' name, that is not true. Just because it's a biological function doesn't mean that God doesn't still control it. He's still responsible. He made us the way we are. God absolutely cares about what we take into our minds. And I can also tell you that throughout the history of mankind, there have been all kinds of people who thought they could just simply escape. They'd go to a monastery, you know, they'd dress in horrible-looking clothes. Uh, we went back in the early 1990s. I was teaching at the Bible College up in Twin Peaks. We, we had this whole... It, it, there was like three semesters. It was like all of the girls believed that if they just let their leg hair grow and never put on makeup and, you know, let their hair get ratty, that none of the guys would actually, you know, ever care about them. They thought, well, we'll just make myself ugly and it'll be fine. It didn't work. <laughs> Had just as many problems. 
It's not, it's not a problem with the hair. It's not a problem with your makeup. It's not a problem with anything other than your heart. It's a heart issue. Where's your heart at with regard to this particular problem? The Lord's commanded us to be in this world, but not of this world. Amen? Amen. And so we, we can't think the way the world thinks. Can I remind you that when David sinned with Bathsheba, when he was on his rooftop and he was looking, he couldn't help but see Bathsheba. She was on a rooftop below his. That part of it was not sin on David's part. It was at that place that David made a choice to engage with his mind and with his heart, and from there it turned into both adultery and murder. You see, he didn't take that and say, look, I'd rather cut my arm off. I'd rather pluck out an eye than disrespect the Lord. And that's the kind of view we have to have. You see, Jesus was speaking of an intentional look with the purpose of lusting, of filling one's mind with sexual thoughts. Getting yourself to that place to where there's not much place to go but to the real deal. Notice how Jesus says, he says, but I, and that means Jesus, say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her is already there. They're already at the spot. If the opportunity afforded itself, if things were different, if a couple of things changed, you could be in a really bad place in a very short period of time. Can I say to you, after 20 plus years of marriage counseling, I have yet to hear a story of a destroyed marriage where someone intentionally, first thing out of the gate, intended to be involved in a sexual relationship with somebody they weren't married to. It began with a look. It began at a water cooler. It began with a lunch. It began with a dinner. It began with not talking to their spouse. It began with something other than, and it proceeded because the heart became enamored and enraptured with that person, and before you know it, they were someplace they never thought they'd go. You need to guard your heart. Train your children to guard their hearts. Your sons, your daughters, my sons are someone else's husband. And we want them to be pure and we want them to be holy. We want them to stand before a holy God and, and be all that they've been called to be. And so Jesus is speaking, and I'm just going to say this. Jesus is speaking of the same situation as a man who goes to an X-rated movie. Jesus is speaking of the same exact thing as those erotic novels. Jesus is speaking to the same thing as someone who looks at porn. He's speaking to 
people who go to the beach for the sole purpose of watching the scantily clad bathing suits go by. He's speaking to anything that causes you to be sexually aroused, and you know it. Don't do it. It will either destroy the marriage that you're currently in or ruin the one that you will in the future have. It's serious business. He's not talking about the unexpected, the unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. He's not talking about that at all. David wasn't at fault when he saw Bathsheba the first time. David was at fault when he didn't go back inside and take a cold shower. Say, that's not my wife. That's Uriah's wife. And I got no business looking at her. It's a popular proverb, modernized, sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, and reap a destiny. So true. You don't think about it initially. It happens very slowly, very gradually. I'm saying, look, what you think about all the time, that's what you're going to eventually do. So where do we go from here? How do we escape it? Deal decisively. Cut it off. Stop it. Quit it. Throw it away. Get rid of whatever it is that's causing the grief in your life. There isn't anything in your life that's so valuable as to, to trade it for a possibility of eternal damnation. But see, I can't tell you. I, I'm not to judge your heart. That's not something that I'm qualified to do. Only God can do that. But I know what his word says about fruit. And eventually, Jesus is going to speak to this issue in such a way. He says, look, if you, you, you can't get victory over it, how do you even know that you're a child of God? And it can be that overwhelming. We need to get a handle on it quickly. We need to watch our conversations. We need to watch where we go. We need to watch what we do. We need to watch the company we keep. We need to watch the conversations that we have. Because they can all take us someplace we don't want to go. That's why Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I possibly, after I've preached to others, disqualify myself. Boy, the last thing in the world I want to do is run the race most of the way. Amen? I want to run to win. I have to get rid of those influences. That's your stupid cell phone. Turn off the data on it. Deal decisively. James said it this way, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's pretty plain, isn't it? Isn't that pretty plain? James chapter 4, verse 4. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Isn't that pretty plain? You hang out with the world, you do things the world's way, you're going to end up hating life from a Christian perspective. Or do you think that Scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? 
But he gives more grace, and therefore, he says there in Proverbs 3, verse 34, God resists the pride. He gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 7 of James 4, he says, therefore, submit to God. And he says something that's easy to say and hard to do. Resist the devil. Amen? Gives you the result, too. He will flee. You need to use your God-given willpower to just say no. Stand up and say, I'm not doing it. I will not go there. It's not worth it. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and he will take those sinners and purify your hearts. Keep you from being double-minded. Humble yourselves. And so these things, submitting and resisting and drawing near and cleansing, they're all on us. Sometimes people mistakenly think that once you become a Christian, you're going to be sin-proofed. Oh, dear Jesus, please help us to throw that thought away, because you're not sin-proof. You're not temptation-proofed. You have to do some good, solid resisting and fleeing and running and doing whatever you got to do to get away from whatever it is. That could bind you. That's on you. That's on me. Don't put yourself in harm's way. You know, none of us in this room are going to feel too terribly sorry for the person who stands out there on the 405 at rush hour and gets run over. Or stand in the middle of the freeway going, nanny, nanny, nanny. You're going to get hit, you know? It's that simple. You may dodge the first few cars, but after a while, you're going to be flatter than a pancake. You can be underneath somebody's Buick. Why? Because you didn't resist. There was a temptation there to go do something dumb. And instead of resisting it and saying, man, that's dumb. That is not too bright. I need to resist that thought because that thought's not from God. You just go, well, you know, maybe I'm going to be immune to bumper. <laughs> no, you're not immune. You're going to get run over just like everybody else who caves into the temptation to do something silly. We have a sin nature, and we're going to have a sin nature until the Lord takes us home. And so tonight, I know it's been kind of a heavy message. I want to give you the good news. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. You can resist. You've been given the Holy Spirit's power in you to resist sin. And you can resist. You can say no. And it's not just to this. It's, to every, it's drugs. It's alcohol. It's bad relationships. It's thievery. It's vulgar language. Anything that you can think of that the enemy would tempt you with you have the power to resist as a child of God. And you can walk in victory. But you need to put some effort into it. And so do I. Because the world's going to try and take you down. The world for sure is going to parade somebody past you to try and catch your eye. You will have your Bathsheba moment. Male or female. You're going to have those things that are going to tempt you. They're going to test you. They're going to try you. For some people, it comes every April 15th. 
They're filling out their tax. Well, I'll just tell a little bit of a lie here, and I'm going to get 2000 bucks back. Tell them the truth. Going to have to write a check for five grand. <laughs> That's called temptation, folks. I need to flee. You need to resist. You need to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. There's an awful lot of people whose destiny is going to be someplace that they will wish that they had made another decision. Hell is real, folks, and Jesus wasn't playing when he was talking about this. He was really saying what was on his heart, and it applies to us. He's going to go on in chapter 6 to say that no man can serve two masters. They either hate the one, love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and anything else. You only have one master at a time. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful, all things are not helpful. They may be lawful for me, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. If you want to not allow sin to have power over you, then resist. And the devil will flee. Give it everything you got. God will meet you in your weakness. He'll provide strength for that weakness. He'll deliver you out of the hand of the wicked one just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. His plans for you are good. They're not evil. They are a future. They are a hope. And in him we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Don't be discouraged. Be determined. Don't be cast down. Be lifted up. You give God your best, he will surely make sure that you have his. Amen.